0: When they endorse this particular technique, it is equivalent to endorsing female genital mutilation involving clitoral amputation. As, um, the result is functionally equivalent. That's how crazy it is. And that was not changed until last year. And It only changed because I emailed the authors and I said that that needed to change. And so what's shocking to me is that no one, Well, ostensibly, no one else ever spoke up about it.
1: Imagine you are a 17 or an 18 year old girl and you are on the internet and you see ads from a medical provider that show before and after pictures of a vulva after a labioplasty. A labioplasty is a procedure where typically a plastic surgeon modifies the size or appearance of the labia majora or labia minora, which are commonly known as the lips of the vulva. These procedures can be called vaginal rejuvenation and other names. Imagine you saw before and after pictures and suddenly thought there was something wrong with your vulva and that you needed the procedure. You never had really had a problem but suddenly you did. You thought, just based on a picture, you thought you did and you had a procedure only to realize not only was more than you thought would be done done but now your sensation around your clitoris is reduced who you just heard is jessica Pinn. jessica is an advocate on social media for vulvar and specifically clitoral anatomy to be included in medical and surgical textbooks. And I wanted to bring her on to share her story because it is absolutely relevant to what happens to, teen- to teenagers and to women nowadays. A lot of women don't know what they're, what they're getting themselves into when they go and get these procedures done. I am so impressed by Jessica's bravery in doing what she's doing. It's scary to even email researchers and physicians as a healthcare provider. And she is just doing the thing and I love it. I highly highly recommend that women who are having these procedures done that have sensory problems that they seek the advice of a pelvic floor physical therapist if there is an issue with sensation because that's something that we help with um that is not something that Jessica really talked Jessica and I talked about but I just wanted to mention that I really admire her bravery for doing what she's doing she's really changing a lot of textbooks out there it's slow but it is she's making it happen and these are the people that you know they get flack or they get some pushback but they make they're the the people that are you can follow Jessica at Jessica underscore Ann underscore Pin, and then you can really help out the podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast on the iTunes app if you have an Apple phone or Spotify. And you can follow us at Pelvic Docs Podcast on Instagram. You can follow me at the Dot Vagina Doc. For this episode and all future episodes, remember our disclaimer. The information used in this podcast should not be used as a substitute for or in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. I am your host, Dr. Jocelyn Conley, pelvic floor physical therapist, and today I have Jessica Pinn on the show. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you tell us your story? Um, So I have
0: just been advocating for better coverage of clitoral anatomy in medical textbooks, especially in OBGYN textbooks and also journals. And the reason why is because I had an experience um, with labiaplasty when I was younger, where a clitoral hood reduction was done without my consent um, during my labiaplasty and the nerves of my clitoris were cut. And so I lost clitoral sensation. And in the years following my surgery, doctors told me that that couldn't have happened and i had a lot of trouble getting help and getting diagnosed and i felt crazy and i ended up teaching myself the anatomy um a few studies that had been published and i also had to understand how that could possibly happen because i had assumed that doctors would know this anatomy better and i had to explain what happened to me in order to deal with it and then i got this idea that i needed to stop it from happening to other people um just in order to come to peace with what happened to me and so that's why i do what i do i guess
1: wow so how old were you And what led you to even getting a labioplasty?
0: I was 18. I didn't know what a clitoris was. Um, I Googled to find out. Um, That's really embarrassing, but I guess, you know, I hadn't paid attention in fifth grade sex ed and I hadn't gotten sex ed in high school. And I just wasn't clear on what the clitoris was. So, you know, I Googled and then. You know, I ended up learning about the vulva and and then Googling labia minora and wondering if I was normal. And I think just my memory is just Googling labia minora brought up labiaplasty before and after pictures, um, which is kind of crazy to think about. But so I stumbled upon um, these labiaplasty surgery websites by accident, um, one website i looked at was dr gary alter's website and i saw his before and after pictures and i looked like the before pictures so i thought i needed surgery i also read that protruding labia minora were considered unfeminine and embarrassing Um, i read that they could be due to excess androgens Um, androgens are male hormones that is actually false but it gets repeated over and over in the literature to this day I read that they could be due to excess masturbation, and so I remember at 17 thinking, "Oh gosh, people are going to think I masturbate," which is also funny to think about because now I have no shame. Um, but back then, I was so embarrassed. I was like, "Oh no, people will know." And um, the other thing is, even to this day, um, in the 2018 Medscape article on labiaplasty, they say they say labial hypertrophy can be caused by sexual activity. And that's just another myth and it's so frustrating, but it adds to the stigma around large labia minora. And so I was reading all of this at age 17 thinking, oh gosh, I have a problem. And unlike a lot of women who develop these insecurities around their labia minora, I didn't have any insecurities until I started looking online and read mostly what doctors were saying And back then I really trusted that anything a doctor published had to be true. And so I took what they published online on their websites to heart. And I also looked at the peer reviewed literature on labioplasty published at the time. And again, I saw a lot of these same derogatory statements um, about causes of labial hypertrophy and about them being considered unfeminine and embarrassing. And so I thought that this was really authoritative. And um, I also read that there were no risks to sexual function. Um, I even read that patients had improved sexual function. And I read these surgeries were safe and effective. And so I thought that, you know, I could safely have a labiaplasty. I thought I needed a labiaplasty. And so, you know, first I went to my mom and she thought that it was such a stupid thing to worry about. And so I felt kind of desperate and I didn't know what to do. So I actually lied and told my father that I had pain while riding my bike. But you know, I was 17 years old when I was doing this. I didn't know any better. I thought I had this embarrassing problem. And if I had really had an issue with pain riding my bike, then someone should have suggested a new bike seat, you know, My OBGYN, who I was taken to for surgery, should not have been so eager to operate on me. And he definitely should not have done the clitoral hood reduction without my consent. And he definitely should not have completely removed my labia minora, which he also did, and is a common outcome with these procedures. And the reason why it happens is because there are no training standards. So. Um, complete accidental amputations still happen to this day. You know, even just recently, I've received messages from women on Instagram. And, you know, it's always frustrating because they'll send me messages where they just like send text and, you know, take a screenshot where it disappears because they don't want their story shared. And I guess I want to be helpful, but You know, I wish that more women were willing to come forward and talk to journalists because just getting these stories doesn't really help me make the point that I think there really is a problem. Um, But, you know, to this day, a lot of plastic surgeons and OBGYNs doing these procedures don't have adequate training and they don't know adequate anatomy. I have focused on the clitoris because that's the loss that's been the most devastating for me, and I think it's also just the most important. Um, but there's also inadequate coverage of the labia minora, and there's just there are just inadequate training standards in general. How long did
1: it take for you to come forward and talk about this? Um, gosh, um. <laughs>
0: uh i i guess it's been 15 years it's been 15 and a half years and i didn't start talking about it publicly until 2018 until two years ago two years ago is when i finally started talking about it online it started with first posting about clitoral anatomy because i thought you know i had noticed some of the work of Sophia Wallace and some other women who had drawn attention to the clitoris, and I think that knowing about their work had made me much less afraid to talk about the clitoris, because I felt like, oh, talking about the clitoris is legitimate now, and I can just have this interest in the clitoris without people thinking that I'm a pervert. Um, Right. Back in 2012, actually, an ex-boyfriend of mine suggested that I just start talking about the clitoris as if it was an academic interest. And I remember just thinking that was a bit crazy and being kind of scared to do that. And I actually did try to talk about it at a bar with some male medical students, and it didn't go very well for me. I ended up just kind of feeling like no one understood me and getting upset. but um, I finally started posting about it in March online in March 2018 after getting an email from a urologist who said you know she didn't know how to get the anatomy disseminated and I guess I just got frustrated and I thought you know maybe if I just started posting about it online that would help and I still don't really know if sharing the anatomy online and talking about my story online has helped. I think that maybe it has, um, but that's the the route that I've taken. Um, and I have thought that when I, you know, like when I email textbook authors and when I try to communicate to doctors why this anatomy is important, I do talk about my story because I think that, you know, it hopefully adds, you know, just some, some legitimacy to my requests, um, you know, because I want people to know that there are very real consequences to not knowing the anatomy. You know, like people can talk about how clitoral anatomy isn't adequately covered, but it doesn't really mean anything until they know that, you know, it it actually like I'm a real person who has been
1: harmed by this, and so it has real consequences. I think I said that. <laughs> what? Enabled you to start talking about it. Um,
0: <laughs> well, i I guess you just mean because it's a trauma. Um, I mean, over the years, I did talk about it some, you know, the I mean, I would talk about it in my personal life. You know, I remember way, way back in 2006, I told my boyfriend, I didn't think I could have an orgasm because of the surgery that I'd had. Um, I didn't really get into it. Um, And then, you know, in 2008, I, or no, 2007, I talked more to another boyfriend um, and he helped me figure out how to have an orgasm with a vibrator. That was very helpful, because I didn't even know what vibrators were. <laughs> I don't have sensation in the glands of my clitoris. Um, you know i I don't have a normal level of sensitivity it It's probably about equivalent to female genital mutilation, um, but I do have sensation at the base of the clitoral body, so like under the top of the clitoral hood, I guess mm-hmm. um, and so. Yeah, so I'm very grateful for the sex toys out there. Hell yes. So I think actually when you asked what helped me start talking about it, honestly, I think moving to San Francisco in 2016 really helped me. I think that it sort of kind of almost lifted a cloud of conservatism. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Dallas is probably a lot more conservative than... So So I was in Dallas
0: a lot when I was first trying to figure out a way to change medicine and, you know, help prevent what happened to me. And also, I just, you know, I guess, you know, like I was seeking help from therapists here and dealing with it. And um, that was really hard because a lot of the therapists I saw didn't seem comfortable. talking about it and so it was difficult I felt like I was felt very alone for a long time because you know I could only talk to my therapists or my parents um there was one boyfriend I talked to about it but I didn't want to burden him um and then there was another ex-boyfriend who is still very supportive um he was in medical school at the time and he was the one who told me i needed to start talking about it and he said jessica as soon as you start talking about this you will realize that people will support you and i wish that i had been been a little braver back then but it was really
1: hard it's it's a tough topic to talk about it's tough to talk about sex and anything around sex or our genitalia without even going into issues around it just even in normal cases it's hard to talk about it so what i i feel like that's pretty normal that you weren't ready to talk about it even though you know it's not normal if that makes sense but um i mean now it's super easy <laughs> yeah like now
0: i post about clitorises i talk about clitorises i think now i'm desensitized to the point where it's almost like when I look back,
1: I don't even know what was wrong with me before. <laughs> it's kind of, but you weird. made it over the hump, which is yeah. huge. Did anyone ever refer you to a pelvic PT like afterward or at any point? I mean, a surgery is a surgery, but did you were you provided any resources of recovery or? Let's say if you had any problems after.
0: I mean, the problems that I had afterwards was I had lost external genital sensation. um, And I didn't bring it up to my doctor for a long time because, well, my original doctor was an old man and I felt very uncomfortable around him. And so I didn't tell him that there was any, I didn't talk to him about any problems with my surgery. Um, I assumed it was my fault, which is weird to think about now, but I just thought, you know, first of all, I thought I had needed surgery and that maybe it was worth what I lost because I, I didn't have a choice. Like that's what I was telling myself that I just really needed that surgery. And then, um, I think you know it was a really big turning point for me when i realized when well when i first started watching porn my experience with porn was a little bit atypical because my first thought when i watched porn was oh that's what i used to look like and i did not need that labiaplasty
1: really so,
0: yeah so i i actually really don't like it when people blame porn for the rise in female genital cosmetic surgery because porn would have saved me from my surgery um because w- I mean, I see, I feel like there are a fair amount of women who have reasonably large labia minora in porn. Um, I think for me, I don't know if mine were really that big. Um, I think mostly my labia majora are very small, so there just wasn't anywhere for them to hide.
1: (laughs) Jeez. So along your journey... of, okay, this happened. And then you wanted to change the medical literature or the textbooks out there. What have you found? What kind of shocking information should people know about that you have found?
0: Well, one thing that I put on my Instagram is that until 2019, the most popular OBGYN surgery textbook only mentioned the dorsal nerves of the clitoris in the context of cutting them on purpose. Um, those were the nerves of mine that were injured. Um, they are responsible for clitoral sensation. Um, in this OBGYN textbook, it's called Taubin's Operative Gynecology. The course of the dorsal nerves in the clitoris are, um, were omitted from the vulvar anatomy chapter. They are now they are now included. I got that changed. Um, but previously they were omitted, and they were only mentioned in this textbook in the context of a clitoroplasty technique that involved cutting them on purpose instead of attempting to spare them. And the authors said that a lack of clitoral sensation did not seem to impact patients' later sexual behavior. They said sexual function seems satisfactory after cutting the innervation to the glands. So that is really shocking if you consider that 70% of women need external clitoral sensation to orgasm and I actually think that number is really higher because that's just the number of women who say that they that they need, you know, direct external clitoral sensation. I think there are a lot of ways in which the clitoris or in which the clitoral glands get stimulated indirectly. And I think you know, a lot of that stimulation is just sort of inevitable with intercourse, honestly. Um so I think you know, when they say, when they endorse this particular technique, it is equivalent to endorsing female genital mutilation involving clitoral amputation. As, um, the result is functionally equivalent. That's how crazy it is. And that was not changed until last year. And It only changed because I emailed the authors and I said that that needed to change. And so what's shocking to me is that no one, well ostensibly no one else ever spoke up about it and to me that's shocking because it just says a lot about i guess problems with medicine in general that
1: no doctors spoke up so all you female doctors out there that are not speaking up it's time to step out of your shell one thing is that these days um most obgyns are
0: women i think um, I think the number is 60%. Um, and so women clearly have a lot of power to change things in medicine and to dictate, you know, the standard of care for women. Um, so I just, I don't see any reason for this sort of thing to continue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the topic of authority and women and healthcare is a whole nother podcast in it in of itself. So we'll save that for a different time, but do you feel that this is an issue of physicians admitting wrong or an issue of power?
0: So I, I really do believe that most, um, that most doctors go into medicine because they really sincerely want to help people. Um, but I think that there is a culture of medical paternalism that causes this sort of attitude towards patients. Um, and I think that's why, you know, a lot of patients may struggle to be listened to and maybe met with dismissive reactions, um, in the wake of my surgery, when I first asked if my surgery could have affected my sexual function, I was nearly, I mean, I was trying to say that it did, but I was deferring to the authority of my doctor, um, I was so scared to even talk about it at all. I felt like I was imposing on her. Um, She said, no, my surgery could not have affected my sexual function. She told me I just needed to relax. So I switched doctors. I went to a new doctor and she told me I just needed to fall in love. And so I, I got these dismissive reactions. Later, I went back to that doctor and I, you know, I explained the anatomy, anatomy to her and I explained that what happened to me was not okay. And I asked if she could please tell other patients like me that they could report their surgeons. And I asked her, you know, to please not say things like you just need to fall in love because sometimes there can be a real physical issue. Um, and she kicked me out of her office. <laughs> She got very defensive. Well, first she said it wasn't any of her business to tell patients that they can report. She told me that I should have known all surgery carries risks, which to me is victim blaming. You know, Again, I was barely 18 years old when my surgery happened. I do have a lot of trouble with how women are often blamed when these surgeries go wrong and women often blame themselves. And I think this gets in the way of you know improving the standard of care for women so there's been a lot that's been written about it there's this book um, called the patient will see you now by eric topol and he talks about the history of medical paternalism um in the old days doctors were basically taught to lie to patients they wouldn't even tell patients when they had cancer um you know, there's this history of doctor knows best. And I think also doctors go through so much training and they invest so much of their lives into medicine. I think that, you know, they develop these egos around everything that they've learned and everything that they've been through in their training process that they, start to just maybe just see themselves as superior, it's hard to say. There's also an issue with denial of mistakes. Um, There's been a a lot of research on how doctors have trouble admitting when they've made mistakes. I forget the numbers, but a fair number of doctors when surveyed will say that no, they would not admit to a patient when they made a mistake. Um, This is despite the fact that acknowledging errors and apologizing actually lowers the chance of a malpractice suit. So, yeah, those are frustrating issues. Um, Also, as far as... with for me with trying to address, with trying to get things changed. There's so much resistance to change because so many doctors have this attitude that they can't be wrong and it, get, it gets worse. So the easiest doctors to get to acknowledge that there needs to be better clitoral anatomy are the younger doctors.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I I hear you on the younger doctors being easier to talk to. One, they haven't had the time to develop the ego yet. And then I think there is a cultural influence in that the younger doctors are more comfortable talking about sexual health than the older doctors. What things can lead someone to the office of someone, a medical professional that can prove or or perform a procedure like this what kind of questions should they be asking before they ever consent to any sort of surgery and what kind of advice would you give them
0: labiaplasty yeah
1: um as far as for patients
0: seeking labiaplasty they should look into the training of whoever they're going to see Um, There are no training standards for labiaplasty, so it's much trickier making sure that your provider is actually qualified to do it. Um, And I hate to say it, but people will be safer seeing a doctor who has performed many labiaplasties before. Even still, I was recently contacted by a woman who saw a plastic surgeon who has done hundreds, if not thousands, of labiaplasties in the past, and she still had an outcome very similar to mine. And so she has lost clitoral sensation and she's gone back to her surgeon and told him she can't, she basically can't feel her clitoris anymore. And he said that it's probably psychosomatic. Um, So, you know, these stories are concerning. I think they're probably rare, but what I've seen is a lot of surgeons doing these surgeries don't know the anatomy well. women are much safer not getting their clitoral hoods operated on. Um, like I said before, my clitoral hood was operated on without my consent. So i tell anyone to make sure, I mean, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous to say, but I, you kind of have to make sure your doctor knows the difference between the lamia minora and the clitoral hood. Um, I personally think plastic surgeons are probably safer than OBGYNs. Um, My father is a plastic surgeon, and so he knew that plastic surgeons um, didn't get taught very good vulvar anatomy. And so he assumed that I would be safer with an OBGYN, but OBGYNs don't get very much education of vulvar anatomy either. So that didn't really help me. Meanwhile, OBGYNs have much less Surgery training. And so that's why I think, in general, plastic surgeons are probably safer. Um, In general, they learn better anatomy. They're more used to learning super, super detailed anatomy for other body parts. Um, I think, you know, they're just a little bit more precise about things. So so yeah, I'd say go to a plastic surgeon. I'd say check that they've had special training in labiaplasty. I'd say don't let them touch your clitoral hood because there's, I just, I can't imagine any situation where anyone needs their clitoral hood reduced. Um, some surgeons will say it improves sexual function. I think that's total bullshit. Uh, I mean, there are, there is such a thing as clitoral phimosis and um clitoral adhesions which can actually lead to sexual dysfunction so claims of clitoral hood reductions improving sexual function could be addressing some sort of issue like that maybe but otherwise i i just i think claims that clitoral hood reductions improve sexual function are bullshit they definitely can damage sexual function because what most surgeons don't realize is that the clitoral hood Most of the clitoral hood is basically the shaft skin of the clitoris. I mean, quite literally, when you're dissecting, you just remove the clitoral hood skin and then right underneath is the body of the clitoris, which is basically just like a mini little shaft. And then you just kinda dissect a little further and there are the nerves. And so to me, I mean, I am not a surgeon, but the nerves are right there. And I think probably when surgeons know the anatomy, they can safely do these. But I think it's probably best to just not get your clitoral hood operated on at
1: all. Don't touch the clitoral hood.
0: Yeah. Um, and I think also if if anyone's getting a labiaplasty, I would say it's not worth doing for aesthetic reasons. Um, I just, this claim, this idea that smaller labia are more are more attractive it's total bullshit there are tons of guys who prefer larger labia minora as they've gotten older i've i've decided that you know large labia minora actually look really cool and pretty a lot of the time um so i'd say unless your labia minora are really causing issues like you know i i know there are extreme cases where they can like actually you know come out of your bathing suit or cause pain Um, or discomfort. Like, I never had these problems. I just claimed that I did, which, you know, that was one thing that people used to tell me it was my fault when I first started talking about it, which is hard. You know, like, when I first told my parents, they were like, well, you shouldn't have lied. That didn't help me. Um, I don't recommend lying about symptoms. Uh, (laughs) So there is that. Uh, I think that, I mean, I would bet that a lot of teenagers in that situation do just because it can be so hard to yeah you know being at least for being a teenager yeah
1: it's hard
0: I mean I just felt so desperate and I've seen that same kind of desperation from teenagers online like I saw a teenager saying that she wouldn't mind losing clitoral sensation as long as she could just get rid of her labia and I was like whoa whoa hold up you're yeah. 16 you don't know what you're talking don't about
1: don't say that <laughs>
0: you know i think you know labial insecurities can be common because women will get this idea that their their vulvas are just supposed to be invisible and hidden but actually 50 about 50 percent of women have labia minora that stick out there's nothing wrong with it um and there's these beauty standards in my opinion are not like other beauty standards so i'm honestly you know, I am the daughter of a plastic surgeon. I'm honestly a little bit vain. I am not one of these people who thinks, like I'm not one of these super, super body positive people who says, you know, all bodies are beautiful and all of that. But I do say when it comes to vulvas, there isn't a lot of evidence around these aesthetic preferences that are marketed to women. So it's not like, like for example, you know, having a low waist-to-hip ratio is a validated beauty standard that, you know, has been shown in studies of aesthetic preferences, but invisible labia definitely has not. In fact, there was one study I saw where participants rated the vulva that they found most attractive. And the one that was picked the most was pretty average looking. I mean, it looked like probably the labia minora were like 1.5 to 2 centimeters, which is pretty average, and that's what people were picking. So it wasn't like they chose the super minimal type vulva. It wasn't like that. It was not what the what the labioplasty surgeons are marketing. So I'd say if anyone's going to get a labioplasty, they need to see someone who believes in
1: leaving a reasonable amount of labia minora. Can you talk about how you, you've figured out your body since, so you've reduced, significantly reduced clitoral sensation. How was your journey learning how to orgasm since then? Because a lot of women have never had an orgasm before. And so you had a uphill so I think
0: that if I can figure out how to orgasm,
1: that anyone can figure out how
0: to orgasm. Would you,
1: what'd you do? What's the secrets?
0: Um, so a lot of the time when I read about women having difficulty orgasming, I read about all these mental blocks and I never had those. Um, so I can't relate to that. Um, you know, I guess for me, it was just a matter of how do I figure out how to get enough physical sensation and physical stimulation for me it's always been very physical and not emotional or mental so it's never really been about getting out of my head or anything like that it's just been about like trying new vibrators until one works for me um I mean I'm jealous I, guess, I mean I guess things
1: like porn and stuff help me honestly um I How think about location do you have any tips on location that you discovered? Or did you have to really learn the anatomy? Because a lot of women are like, no, I don't want to learn that. But really, the more you know, the more control you have over the area.
0: Oh, as far as targeting, oh, it's extremely, extremely specific. I have to finally, I have to like get the vibrator on the exact right spot. And it's it's so particular that I haven't been able to teach anybody else to do it for me, you know? So <laughs> that's been, you know, like my, I guess my relationship goals would be like, you know, maybe someday a guy would be able to hold my vibrator for me. <laughs> but I do kind of have advice for women who haven't had orgasms. Cause I have talked to a couple and like, I would say you just have to have a problem solving mindset. You know, you just have to keep trying all different things and just not have, like, shame shouldn't even be part of the equation. Like, shame, expectations, all that, like, shoulds, ideas about how things should be, they just don't matter.
1: The only thing that matters is just figuring out how to make it work. Yeah, and work for you because the way it works for you may not be the same as your friends.
0: Yeah, it's, I just know for me... It was just sort of like solving a problem. And I think that that's a good approach to
1: have. This has been absolutely wonderful. As a recap, if you're considering a surgeon, go with plastic surgery. Two, you've got to just explore and figure out what what works for you, right? When, When it comes to finding your ability to orgasm. And then last piece of advice of dealing with this from a mental health perspective. Could you provide anyone that might be listening that's struggling with issues around the clitoris, whether they've had a procedure or not, what they can do?
0: One thing that my dad thinks is that the dorsal nerves of the clitoris are actually large enough to potentially be repaired if they're injured. So if anyone has suffered an injury from a vulvar surgery or any kind of accident, um, I think that they should find someone who specializes in nerve repair and see if they could get it fixed.
1: That's an option.
0: um, And as far as dealing emotionally, I feel like you know, one problem I had was I kept going to trauma therapists and I don't think they were comfortable talking to me about sexual issues. So I would almost recommend seeing a sex therapist instead for help. I don't know. Yeah,
1: I would, I would agree. I would say someone that's in sexual health in the psychotherapy world. Well, Jessica, if our listeners want to Follow you or contact you? How can they reach you? What's the best ways to connect?
0: Uh, I'm on Instagram. And what's, um, what's your handle? Uh, Jessica and Pin with space bars between each. <laughs>
1: People can message me on Facebook. <laughs> Perfect. So find Jessica on Facebook or Instagram and send her a message. Ask her how she achieved orgasm and all the things. She's absolutely wonderful. So Jessica, thank you so much again for coming on. I can't wait to see what other changes that you make in the um, obstetrics and gynecology and plastics surgical world. Um, I will be sure to continue to follow you and support you any way I can. So until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Thank you.